0: Today is Sunday, September 10th, 2017. Our message is called Harassed and Helpless. Harassed and Helpless. I did want to cover a few blessings before we start. We received word uh, yesterday or day before from Brent and Teresa Vincent that they have received their Indonesian kitas. That's great news, isn't it? What it takes most people more than two years to do, they did on almost exactly a one-year anniversary. The victorious nature of the faith of the Vincents is inspiring. This latest trip to Indonesia, I went to encourage them, and the truth is, is I left encouraged by their faith. Uh, In this next year, as many of you, say as many, many. As many of you as want to go to Indonesia, we are going to find a way for you to go. Indonesia is going to be a new training center for what we are doing. It's going to be a new branch of our ministry and spirit that will allow us to send missionaries around the world and get your first taste of it there. Sound like a good plan? Very soon, sooner than I would like, but right on God's timetable, we're going to send Buddy and Kim to Peru. They're going to spend two months there getting the lay of the land, figuring out exactly what they need to do to itinerate when they come back, what they need to do to be there for a lifetime rather than just a short term. I'm very proud of them. Uh, Right after the first of the year, there'll be an ordination and some of those things. Man, there's nothing that we like more than sending out our own. Amen? Amen. Having said that, Gammy is going to go away for a little while. Uh, He's got some other things to do. He'll be back here, but... This is Gammy's last service with us for a few weeks. So if you get a chance to hug on his neck and pray for him today, I would appreciate that. Uh, we had a prison ministry testimony today. our prison ministry team in here? Oh, Amen. Y'all enjoy prison ministry testimonies? Yes. Nolan, what kind of testimony we got, man? Kicking down the devil's door. Amen. <laughs> a testimony. These are the kind of Christians the devil's mama warned him about. Um, it was pretty cool because this morning on both sides, the girls and the guys, we had a lot of spiritual opposition. Um, for the girls' side, we, while, while we're preaching on both um, sets, we had like, some crazy stuff happening outside the door. So much that we can't even hear what we're preaching about. And of course, we're preaching about the worries of this world the the lust of this world and all those things choking us out in our faith and so of course you know chaos is happening outside the door and then I'm so proud of my girls that are going with us too and immediately all of them are just praying in the spirit under the breath and then that situation gets taken care of and the word the seed was received uh, by the ladies that were in there with us and lives were changed this morning so we're excited about that amen, amen. look at this scripture It is Mark three thirteen. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Amen. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Amen. We have power over all the power of the enemy. And it took a while uh, for each one of us that is in the faith to be born again and right now we're chipping away at those who are demonically oppressed, but we are going to see demonically possessed people born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're working on. So much of the kingdom is about seeing people born again. Nolan gave me a testimony yesterday evening about somebody that will be let out in exactly nine months. We're having a baby, y'all. you're not entirely sure what is happening here. For some months now I've been having them give prison testimonies and everybody's wondered whether it was a baby announcement and this week we decided to fulfill that request. We've also watched this couple grow up before our eyes and um, watched Nolan go from a slightly misdirected teenager to one man of God who is full of heavenly fire. So we're rejoicing that the Kingdom is growing in every way. Amen? Amen. So our message today, Harassed and Helpless. Uh, This is a bit of a continuation from Wednesday. If you weren't here Wednesday that message was called Wit's End. And it was based on Psalm 107. I may or may not refer to some of that as we go. But I do want to repeat some of the praise that I gave this church at the beginning of that message. That's not a normal thing for me. My favorite expression in all of the nations that I've been to, and that's been over 30 now, uh, in all of the trips that I've made, and it's in the hundreds of international trips for preaching the gospel now, my favorite expression is sometimes a kick in the butt is a step forward. That comes uh, vis-a-vis Romania. It is a common Romanian expression, and it makes me want to be Romanian. Having said that, there is also no substitute for a word aptly spoken. Solomon said that. And I want you to know in all of the people that I've met around the world, in all the churches, and man, have we been in some fine churches. I mean, if you want to see people on fire for the Lord, go to India and watch what happens when a plantation full of tea workers that have barely ever left that plantation find out about the good news of the gospel. The earth shakes with their praise. It's extraordinary. But in all of those travels, I've never met a group of people that I'm prouder of than you. I watched your pastors from afar hold up the standard that was Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, and we watched you rise to meet that standard through outreaches at the Arius house in that neighborhood, outreaches at Knob Hill, outreaching to the world around you. The Lord has set the stage for us and now is our time. This is not a sad moment in uh, United States history. This is a glorious moment. People will have the opportunity to see who the sons of God are. Amen? Amen? The events of the last month or so could have even skeptics beginning to open their Bibles. August brought us a solar eclipse. Hurricanes Irma, Jose, and Katia are bearing down on us right now. Two days ago in Chiapas, Mexico, there was an earthquake that was 8.1 on the Richter scale. That's pretty big, huh? Yeah. Pastor Sutherland informs me that an 8.1 was the strongest in the century, in the previous hundred years, and was a force equal to all the munitions exploded in World War II times a factor of seven. That's incredible. It produced a tsunami. I mean, all that's just in the last few weeks. Nations are aligning in tension against nations. The Korean Peninsula is, according to NATO, closer to war than at any time in our history since the 50s. Articles are running in nationally circulated newspapers with titles like, How Could God Let This Happen? It's always interesting that God is the first to blame with every perceived negative thing. Our city's largest churches are behaving in a very predictable manner. These are truly interesting times. A satirist may wonder whether the contemporary church will need to rename our albums from Oceans to Desert Refuge just in case they want to keep their pattern of the least offensive speech and most culturally palatable marketing possible been jokingly suggested that Joel Osteen was seen handing out copies of your best life now from a yacht on Interstate 59. While that's probably not true, it's far more believable than the statistic that the Red Cross spends 90% of all monies received on the people they were received for. After all, their CEO only makes $517,000 a year before bonuses. I'm proud of this church. It's not my intention to be critical of the world around us for no reason. I want to draw a stark contrast. A hundred percent of what is received here for hurricane relief goes to hurricane relief. When you give a dollar to missions, do you know what we do with the dollar for missions? We add 28 cents to it on average. Out of the general church operating fund for every dollar that you give, we take that dollar, add 28 cents to it and send it overseas. In the last five years, every year, that's been over $100,000. Out of this group, look around. It's pretty incredible. We all started as scared teenagers and early 20-somethings. Only our elders were in the faith for years before the church began. And look what the Lord is doing here. I'd like to point your attention towards a scripture. Luke 21, beginning in verse 10. (coughs) Say there when you were there. Where are the rest of you? Did you give up already? (laughs) If you're upset now, wait till we get to the halfway point. I missed you guys. This last 35 days or so out of the country was a lot. In the last five years, I've spent over a year and a half sleeping outside of the country, spread out over those five years. It's always refreshing to come home, to feel what I felt in worship today, In this place is extraordinary. I want you to know that there are nations full of people that have never felt what you felt in here today. That is so precious. And yet we're not alone. We're not an esoteric group of believers. This is not some small cultish kind of storefront church. The truth is we're a part of the larger body of Christ that is spread out all over the world and this is going on in grass huts in Africa. It's going on on dirt floors in India. Occasionally it's going on in the dry cathedrals in West Europe. The Lord is not a respecter of our setting. He moves everywhere people are hungry for Him. Are you in Luke 21? Yes. Luke twenty-one ten. Then He said to them, "'Nation will rise against nation, "'and kingdom against kingdom. "'There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences "'in various places, and fearful events, "'and great signs from heaven.'" The other often quoted scripture during this time is the 25th verse. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nation will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of deceit. Has anybody seen Fox News lately? They are perplexed. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. When we hear things like these... It's easy for the newspaper prophet to say that Jesus is going to return any minute. In fact, you're going to hear a lot of that. After all, we are living in these kind of times, aren't we? Well, not really. Not by a long shot. The thought is almost cute when you put it into perspective with what the Word actually says about the end times. Turn with me to Matthew 24, 36... And let's see if we can lay a little bit of a foundation that will put our hurricanes and earthquakes and uh, monumental presidential elections and all of those things into an end times perspective. Matthew 24, 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was... When we approach the time that the Son of Man returns, we will be in a time period that resembles Noah. Did you catch that? The days of Noah part? There was no flood insurance for the Noahic deluge. There was no FEMA program. There was no Red Cross to offer humanism in the place of Christianity. In fact, the Noahic times were so grieving that the heavenly powers had defected. Fallen ones, called Nephilim, were celebrated on the earth. Listen to what Genesis 6 verse 5 says. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. My point is that things are going to get worse, they're going to get much worse. For Jesus to say that it will be as it was in the days of Noah and for us to believe that that's now because you do or don't like this administration or the previous administration or you think that a couple states are receiving historic floods is really kind of silly, isn't it? I mean, after all, the globe received a flood and Noah's dead. The all, whole of humanity was so fascinated with demonic or fallen angelic powers, that they were called mighty men of renown and were held in high regard. Now, I agree that we're hinting at that. But the truth is, is Matthew 24 says something so staggering that we better prepare for it. Are you ready for Matthew 24, verse 21? Say there when you're there. there. For then... There will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. Somebody say unequaled. Unequaled. How much distress has there been on the world from the beginning till now? Well, when we're talking about the days of Noah, there was enough distress to wipe out all but eight. How about the Holocaust? How about the six million Jews that died in the fires of World War II? What is coming upon the world will be greater... Than any previous distress in history. That's incredible. And it will never be equaled again, according to the second half of the verse. Never surpassed. We're talking about something that is worse than has ever happened on the planet and can never be equaled again. Somebody say that's a, bunch, that's a bunch, Pastor. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. The world will enter into a time that has no equal in previous history. What is happening now should be rightly seen as an awakening from slumber for those who are in the kingdom. This is, this is child's play compared to what is coming upon the world. This is a wake-up call. It's not even the full alarm clock. It's that gentle music that Samsung plays before the alarm actually goes off. It's not birth pain, it's Braxton Hicks. Our loving Father is reminding us that the relative affluence and the safety that we've enjoyed was preparation, not retirement. This is our waking hour to the time of need that is around us. They are perishing without hearing the Word of God. I will not be teaching eschatology today nor am I going to entertain you with amazing apocalyptic facts. What I intend to do is help waken the church that I love to the beauty of this terrible moment. Did you hear that? The beauty of this terrible moment. Because the coming of the day of the Lord is both awesome and it's terrifying. In every significant shaking that occurs on the earth, whether there seems to be death, whether there's flooding, no matter what the terrible nature is, there is something that is beautiful in it. It reminds us that we are mortal and that we are going to answer to a righteous judge. It reminds us that all of our safety can be taken away in a moment. It reminds us, in short, to fear God. This is why articles are coming out, How Could a Loving God Allow this to happen. They weren't concerned with what the loving God thought a week before the flood was coming. I was speaking with a young man about where you're born on the earth and the extent to which your culture influences your beliefs. It is true that if you grow up in India, the largest cultural belief that is likely to be enforced upon you will be Hinduism. But that is not why an Indian is Hindu. An Indian is Hindu because he's a monstrous sinner before God, depraved and cut off from the righteousness that is God. And he has the right to change from whatever he is into a son of God at the preaching of the glorious gospel. So it's not flood relief that we need. It's not a FEMA check that we need. It's not even a new culture that we need. It's a heavenly message that heals our very soul and places us inside the kingdom. I'm thankful for those that are handing out mops and hanging sheetrock. That's a beautiful thing. But I would rather not have the mop and not have the sheetrock and have the Word of God. I say, why not have one and the other also? It is a cowardly thing to say I'm a Christian and I'm going to mop your floors, but I'm not going to tell you why I'm mopping your floor. I just don't want to preach, you know. If you can't preach during this time, when can you preach? So we just don't want to be offensive. You know what's offensive? is watching people go to hell when they don't have to. Matthew 9 is going to make up our text today. We're going to camp here. As usual, I'm going to refer to the Law of Prophets, writings, Old and New Testament. I'll bounce all over the place a little bit like a man who has ADD at a buffet. But you'll be able to keep your finger in Matthew and know that I'm always coming back to Matthew. Where am I always coming back to? This message begins and ends in Matthew 9. Let's begin in verse 33. (coughs) And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. An outstanding miracle. That's beautiful, isn't it? Verse 34. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. As we approach this text, its immediate context was found in Isaiah. 740 years before Matthew wrote his writing. I want to give you that so that you'll have it. It's Isaiah 5 beginning in verse 20. You can keep your finger in Matthew. Isaiah 5:20 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. You know what's more troubling than the stirring of the ocean or the trembling of the earth beneath our feet? What's more troubling is that truly holy and miraculous workings are attributed to the devil, while popularity pundits in their pulpits put forward evil as good to the applause of millions. And they do it every week. There's such little actual discernment in our nation. We have Bibles, we have so many Bibles that we've often got Bibles in our house that we haven't picked up or read. It's not for lack of access to God's word. People perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This is what 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, says. We put up with men who have turned the gospel of Jesus Christ into some get rich quick scheme, some loosely veiled form of making humans better humans. Jesus Christ did not die to take sinners and make them good men. He died to take those who were dead in their sin and make them alive in Christ. Amen. There is a vast difference between those two things. They preach a selfish, sacrificeless, satanic gospel of greed. And those in the millions around them applaud. While the, those who are laboring in love through obstacles, obscurity, in the outer extremity of humanity, working in heavenly power, are looked at with disdain. What makes a man a great man of God? Is it how many people bought his book? Or is it the impact that he had on your son or daughter? What makes somebody a great man of faith? Is it the size building that they built? Or the amount of persecution that they endured without flinching? See, we have so twisted up things that we are celebrating right along with the false prophets. I returned to the United States to hear about burning man meetings. At least they named it right. They are all going to burn. Modern day idolatry. What does it look like? Well, when you love things that are not the gospel. And it's almost always got a sexual perversion in it because that's what America loves the most, burning man meetings. It's incredible. There is so much that is difficult to say because we love ourselves very much. But the truth is you usually do not feel corrected by the Holy Ghost until you have seen the same flaw in someone else directed at you. And that's because our hearts are inherently evil. They're wicked. We're deceitful beyond all other things. So we can sit in our affluence and sit in our wealth and think everything is okay until there's a flood. And we're reminded that in a second everything cannot be okay. Did the loss of a lazy boy send you into tears? Did a flooded car make you feel like God had abandoned you? What will it be like when they feed us to lions in front of crowds that believe they're doing a service to God? The fact that the church could believe that this is a sign we're in the end times is so laughable it shows... How weak the faith is. This is about all they think they can stand up to. The truth is, this is like a water gun. It's really not that big a deal. So Eric, that's easy for you to say. You were out of the country when the floodwaters rose. Please don't think this is my first hurricane. I grew up in Louisiana. The church of Jesus Christ will not be overcome by a flood. We actually shine during it. But we need to shine rightly. Not because we raised the most money. Because people's lives were saved spiritually and physically through your ministry. That's what we're looking for. Notice verse 35. It's everything. If you don't hear anything else I say today, maybe you could circle verse 35. Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages. Where did He go through all the towns and villages. Have you noticed how apt the church is to say, get me the hell out of here? We want to be raptured at any moment. We want Jesus to come back at any moment. At any second, we want this all to be done, never mind the fact that most in Indonesia have never heard the gospel. Never mind the fact that in the birthplace of the Gentile church, Turkey, there are 80 million Muslims and there are not 5,000 Christians. That none of the churches of Revelation are even there today. That the congregations they were speaking to in the location that Jesus wrote to is not there. We just want out. Is that not a sign of depravity? When the last words that Jesus speaks to the church are, go into all the world, and the first thing out of our mouth is, come quickly... This shows a disparity between God's will and the human will, doesn't it? Praise God for things that awaken us, like floods and natural disasters. They show you a glimpse of what hell on earth looks like, and when we see hell on earth in front of us, we remember that they're headed to hell. Not just in floodwaters. Not just in the loss of a job or income. Their lives are a living hell now and they're going to enter into hell for an eternity. And it ought to break your heart with compassion. I learned a long time ago not to take pictures of animals on the mission field because people will care more for the dogs starving in India than the 25 Indians in the picture. If we play a Sarah McLaughlin song in the background and put creepy pictures of strange dogs up, we probably raise more money than we ever could for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There needs to be an awakening in the body. These are sobering times. These are exciting times. I'm not excited at somebody else's tragedy, but it's beautiful that tragedy gets people to think for the first time in years about what God thinks about them. What a shame that we've relegated the work of rescue, the work of feeding, the work of aid to humanistic organizations that will not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a shame, isn't it? Jesus went through all the towns and villages. All the towns and villages, not just the ones populated by the preferred color of the preacher. What is it about white Christians that they want to go to white Christians and black Christians that they want to go to black Christians? Can't we just be Christians first? Don't we need to grow up beyond this? If you wear any label before Christ, then you need to know what you're saying. You have an idol in your life. Christ comes before all, period. You ought not be more sympathetic to one lost man than another lost man. They are both lost men. What does it say about our heart if you care more about somebody that looks like you than somebody that doesn't look like you? The heart of the gospel is that we go into nations that do not look like us. Every nation going to another nation. Do you know why? There's nothing selfish in it. There's no motive in it other than the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know we're not supposed to say this stuff, right? Like you to be divisive. No, it's not divisive. It's the most unifying thing that there ever is. We should correct each other on it. We should laugh about it. We should joke about our own weakness that it's even there. In an effort to eradicate it. It's got no place among the body of Christ. I happen to like beards. Whether they're on a white guy, a black guy. I actually like black guys' beards better than white guys'. I haven't figured out how to shape mine. You know? It just kind of hangs there. But say Frank... Forgive me, I've missed (laughs) y'all. We also don't only want to go to those that are in precious proximity to a popular resort. You know, I really feel called to this particular Caribbean island. The people are in such great need there that on the first day we'll get acquainted. On the second day we'll go out and do some puppet shows on the street. On the third day, we'll rest because we're exhausted from the other day. The fourth day is a shopping day. And the fifth day, we go get massages at the local resort and prepare to go back and show everybody our pictures of our missions trip. Guys, in the real world, the one that is actually suffering, you can't go get massages while they're going to hell. You can't spend your life at Disneyland while they're dying. You know. You tend to care when you find out one of your relatives is in the hospital about to go meet Jesus. Do you care less if it's my relative and he's not in the hospital? You either have a burden for the lost or you're out of touch with God's plan. Revelation 14.6 says something incredible. And you can keep your finger in Matthew. We're always coming back to Matthew today. In Revelation 14.6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth. To every nation, tribe, language, and people. (coughs) Who is it supposed to be proclaimed to? Every Every nation. Tribe, language, and people. Truthfully, it's not the job of the angel to do it. Apparently, it wasn't done by human beings. But it's supposed to be. He said in a loud voice, Now what's he going to preach? What did the Bible call it? The eternal gospel. Listen to the first word of the eternal gospel. Fear God. Tell me that's not happening right now at the tip of Florida. People that have not prayed in years are praying. Mostly they're praying that they don't lose their stuff. They need to lose their stuff. When they lose their stuff, they'll turn to the Lord. Their stuff might be in the way between them and the Lord. Do you know how I know that? Because it's been true in our lives. We say we have no idols and then we talk about getting rid of anything and we can't do it. We're like the rich young man that comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Do you find out that you have to sell everything, give it to the poor? And you walk away sad because there's no way you're doing it. You'll just talk about doing it. Does everything you have belong to the Lord? Does it? Then you won't mind if it washes away in Hurricane Harvey. You won't mind at all. The same God who gave you that is able to give you more if He deems that you should need it. If He deems that you should need it. You know, I know what it's like to give away automobiles. I know what it is like to give in a way that it hurts. I also know that the temptation is to give away your old automobile when you know you're buying a new one. Wouldn't it be more like Christ to give away the new one and keep driving the old one? Now you're beginning to see the difference between somebody who has altruistic and, I can't say that word, who has charitable ideas versus Christ ideas. Fear God and give him glory. First words of the eternal gospel. Fear God and give him glory. Can we say that it's possible to do the first without doing the second? A lot of people fear God when there's an earthquake, they'll cry out. When the building comes down in New York, they will cry out, there is fear for God, but where is the glory due His name? Do you know that the Bible is replete with people who cry out acknowledging that there's a God calling out to Him? But it's in anger and defiance saying, why would you let this happen to me? See, when we preach Jesus loves you, When we preach, Jesus wants to help you. When we preach, Jesus wants to give you heaven and that's all we preach. The masses find it perfectly acceptable because they love themselves too. They want to be helped too. And they want to go to heaven. What they need to know is that God is to be feared because they're wicked and He is righteous. And without an incredible, total, absolute change of all that is you, your person, you have no chance of surviving the wrath that is coming. And a flood just reminds you of that. An earthquake reminds you of that. The man with millions in the bank will gladly part with all of his millions if his grip is about to be lost from the second floor of a building he's hanging off of. Am I wrong? You know how many people I've met that said they're not scared to die then spend every penny they have to stay alive one more week? Not even a good life. One that's on machines. One that nurses are doing obscene things to you that ought never be done to a human body. You're going to take his temperature how? Jesus went through all the towns and villages. My point here is that Jesus' ministry extended to the entire fields. He did not cut off part of the field. He didn't say some was too hard, too far to get to, just not His burden, just not cold. You know, He didn't stay in the comforts of His hometown. It was to the whole field. That's an important idea. Matthew 24, 14 says that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to every nation, every How can Jesus come back when there are nations that have never heard His name? In a city with two million people, Gaziantep, we could not find anyone on the street that had ever met a Christian. Ever. Can you live with that? See, I can't. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Let's have a crash course in the good news of the kingdom. What does it mean to say the good news of the kingdom? Have you ever read Matthew 4, 17? It's the first time Jesus preaches anything. You know what he says? Repent! Repent. The kingdom's at hand. What is the first opening volley that comes from Jesus? What is his, his first word? It's repentance. Is it amazing that Pastor Colgate and the whole crowd that loves him all around the world doesn't use the word? We don't need to repent. It just may not be best for us. Repent is the beginning of the gospel. Do you know why it's the beginning of the gospel? Because it shoves right in your face the brutal, upfront, loving, honest truth that you are wrong and God is right. In other words, it fulfills the requirement of the eternal gospel, which says, first fear God, then give Him glory. Do you know you cannot repent without some fear of God and the desire to give Him glory, all you're doing uh, is just being sorry you were caught otherwise. But when you fear the greatness of His name and you desire to give Him glory by admitting you were wrong and asking for help, it's the beginning of the gospel. Repent. The kingdom is at hand or is near. It means it's about to envelop you. You know, the truth is, that gospel's not been preached everywhere there are Christians. We've preached some other lame version. This is, do you want help in this life, in heaven, in the next? If so, do the most courageous thing possible. While everybody here shoves their head between their knees, you raise a pinky. If that's salvation, friends, then it's some other kind of salvation that I cannot find in the Word. During these kind of difficult times, you have already the the portrait painted for you. Your whole life can be lost in a moment, and yet you still stand here before Me. If God spared your life, what did He spare it for? What do you owe Him now? Say, but my grandma died, and and so-and-so died. And He'll say, yes, and yet you stand here. Were you better than she was? no, you're not better than her, then we agree. You were as wicked as she was. What do you now owe your king for saving your life? You know who's not going to do that? FEMA. FEMA's not going to do that for us. Man, that just seems kind of insensitive. You're right. It would be entirely more sensitive to hand them a sandwich and watch them go to hell. See, we need to learn to preach the gospel during the difficult times. Do you know why? It's what the gospel's for. Great distress brings a great Savior. And He is great. He is able to meet people right where they are. He doesn't need you to bridge the cultural gap. He doesn't need to make sure that you look like them, you talk like them, or you act like them. You can actually be from another nation with another language, dressed entirely differently, totally unable to relate to them in any way other than that you were both monstrous sinners. And God had mercy on you. And you know He will use that and save them? Think how different that is from our evangelism outreaches. Good news of the kingdom. Luke 16, 16 says this, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Where is that in our preaching and teaching today? That it is difficult that you have to force your way in. You say, what do you mean? It's all by faith. Yeah, people who say that don't know what faith is. Do you know how hard it is to trust the Lord when you don't understand what He's doing at all? Who do you have to be forceful with? Yourself. I am not backing up on what the Lord showed me. I am not going to let up, shut up, back up. I am moving where He said move. I am saying what He said say. I don't care what everyone does around me. Even if my own body and my own thoughts rebel against it, I will not back up from the heavenly revelation. That's, that's Luke 16, 16 kind of faith. How much of that do we see in the soup line? Have we really done a good thing if we're simply feeding people while they go to hell. And this ministry feeds lots and lots of people. Can't we do both? Yes. Yes. See, I think we ought to do both. The answer is not one or the other. It is the necessity of both. Jesus did both. But can I tell you, He often fed people and said, the only reason you're following me is because I'm feeding you. And then preached the most difficult message that you can preach. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He was not scared to turn people away because he knew something. When the kingdom gets hold of somebody's life, they can't be turned away. That is a good word. Let's take the next part of this verse. In Matthew 9, 35 again. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. I wish that we had not relegated this to tele-evangelists. I wish that we did not believe that this was the realm of a certain anointed few. The truth is, is that Jesus said, to a representative selection of humanity that would represent all who would ever receive His Spirit, what is recorded in Luke 10, 19. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. How much of the enemy's power are you able to overcome? There is no sickness. There is no disease that Jesus is unable to defeat. The rude truth, and I mean rude, is that we're often praying for people and the Lord didn't tell us to do it. We are often declaring someone healed and the Lord didn't declare them healed. And other times we're refusing to pray for somebody to be healed that the Lord is telling us we must go do it. It shows how little we're actually hearing from Him. Say, well, they were sick, so I prayed for them to be healed. Amen. And in general, I agree with you. Except what if that sickness is the thing driving them to the Lord? And the moment they were healed, their heart would turn hard against the Lord. You know how many times I've seen it? Three times in one year. Three times in one year we saw people healed of an incurable disease, a very specific kind of cancer, with medical proof. And all three were not serving the Lord by the end of the second year. The point is not don't pray for people. The point is we're supposed to know the will of the Lord when we pray. Then we wouldn't have to have these uh, cute clerical prayers that say, if it be the Lord's will. Forgive me, but what the heck are you doing if you don't know it's His will? Yeah? Please don't pray for me if it be the Lord's will. I'd rather you just keep your faithless words to yourself. We're supposed to discern what the Lord's will is and then fight all the power of hell for it. Somebody say amen in the house of God. See, it either is God's will that they be healed or it's not. And you ought not presume it. You ought to know. You ought to be in touch with your Lord. We're going to find verse after verse that says Jesus healed every sickness, every disease. You can read it in Acts 10, 38. And that's beautiful. At first glance, there ought not been any sickness in the world, huh? Except that's not what it means at all. It means that every sick person He prayed for, He healed. It doesn't mean that there were no sick people that he didn't pray for. How about the Pool of Siloam? So many people going down that the the man uh, who had been paralyzed 38 years couldn't get into the water. Jesus didn't heal them all. He healed that one man. He didn't fail. Do you know why he didn't fail? He had heard from God about what he was supposed to do and he didn't stop until it was done. We need to acknowledge something, saints. God is not failing us. We are sometimes failing to have heard from Him correctly. We say things like, I prayed and it's supposed to work and it didn't work. You sure you have all of the pieces to that mathematical formula you just created in your head? Could there be a piece of it, I don't know, involving you and your sin that we didn't get? See, the thing is, is a church that is connected to the needs of the people in the heart of God, we will know what He wants to do in them. Can I tell you adversity is the very best thing to happen to some of you? Others of you needed relief at the moment that it came and if you didn't get it you might have been overwhelmed and the Lord knows the difference between the two. He's not monolithic. He's not stuck in one pattern. He's not either compassion or adversity. He's, he's not either judgment or kindness He is able to do more than one thing in one event for more than one person at one time. My favorite is in Matthew 9.36. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Let me run through a couple passages for you. Matthew 10.30 and Luke 12, 7 both say that He's numbered the hairs on your head. Do you know that God can have compassion on someone while He is burning Sodom and Gomorrah to the ground? Yes. That He knew the number of hairs on every person's head. And mine's changing daily. Some of my hairs have decided they're too close to the sun and they've jumped upon my shoulders for the shade. He keeps track. He's watching. He's watching. You mean God can watch your life closely enough to know the number of hairs on your head and still allow you to have to swim from your front door to find relief by the Cajun Navy? Of course. He knows exactly what you need to bring you closer to Him. How about we stop distrusting Him? <clears throat> Matthew ten twenty nine says, a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. What does that tell you about every tragic death? It's not possible for it to happen without the Lord allowing it. So let me ask you how I started the sermon on Wednesday. Would you discredit the justice of God to make yourself feel more just? You know, a tower fell on some people and Jesus said, do you think that they were worse sinners? Do you think that that's why the tower fell on them? He said, no, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you won't enter the kingdom. So, what are we to take from that? He said that we're all guilty. Everybody deserves death. The fact that it came to some and didn't come to you doesn't mean that it wasn't just for them. It means that you were still an object of His mercy. What are you doing with it? All of the human race is under a death sentence. So how could a loving God do that? How could a loving God allow so many wicked people to still live? That's a better question. Because he knows he's capable of changing them if they will but submit to him. Psalm 84 in verse 3 says that he provides a nest for the swallow near his altar. Now, I want you to get this picture. He's both numbered the hairs on your head. And for me and Curtis, that's an interesting thing. Mine's changing every day. And at what point does stubble become a full hair? And while that's happening, look, Timo's getting taller with his hair. He's six foot two, he's six foot five with his hair. While that's happening, you know what else he's concerned with? how close a swallow is able to build her nest to his presence. Does that sound like a God that's detached? It's not a God who's detached. He's a God who has compassion on you. But why compassion? Let's talk about that. Does he have compassion on everyone? No, not by a long shot. Not even close. Some, (coughs) they actually have found the very wrath of God in this life, won't even have to wait for the next. What do you mean, how could a loving God allow this to happen? He's been warning us from heaven for centuries. He is compassionate beyond description, but that's not all He is. He is not monolithic in His response to humanity's rebellion. He's multifaceted in His response. I want to read you a couple passages. This comes from 2 Peter 2.9. If this is so... Then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and... Say and. And. To hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. He can punish some, hold some for judgment, and save others all in the same event. How could a loving God let this happen? Because He loves us. We get an opportunity to see that He is able to hold some for judgment... He's able to bring some to judgment and He's able to save some all in the same event. Do you know what that means? No matter what's happening in your life, you're not beyond His reach. How about Romans eleven twenty two? 22? Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. The kindness and the what? Sternness. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. You know what that means? That means that whether or not He's compassionate to you is largely determined to how you react to Him. Now, if you go back to our text, Matthew 9.36, when He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them. What's the next word? Because. He had compassion on them. Why? Because. Don't you hate that when you're a kid? Like, why is water wet? Because. Why is the sun hot? Because. Because is not an answer, is it? Praise God, there's words that follow because. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Saints, you're about to find out a key to God's heart. Amen. And it's an important key. Do you want to know more about him or would you rather sit in judgment of him and what he does? We want to know harassed, and helpless. They were not leaning on FEMA. They were not leaning on the Red Cross. They were not leaning on a compromised, counterfeit, or otherwise bastardized version of a social gathering that masquerades as a church. They weren't leaning on their own nest egg or their own right arm. They were at their very wit's end. They were completely helpless. What does it mean to be helpless. I want to give you a couple examples. Is that okay? 2 Chronicles 14. Hey, let me put up our first slide for a second before we go to 2 Chronicles. If you're waiting for FEMA to shepherd you, you're not helpless. FEMA is your help. If you're waiting for the American Red Cross to help you, then the American Red Cross is your shepherd, not the Lord. If you're waiting on the kind of church that preaches about compassion fatigue, or you're depending upon your golden nest egg, you have false shepherds in your life. These people were helpless like sheep without a... shepherd. See, he is not fighting for those that are shepherded by FEMA. He is not fighting for those that are shepherded by the compassion fatigue crowd, or the every day is Friday crowd. He is fighting for those that have no shepherd and are helpless. They haven't chosen another God. They are broken in their circumstances and have no one to help them. Sometimes we spend all of our time trying to get an idolater to fall in love with the Lord. We need to be looking for the man who is already broken by idolatry, throwing it away, and he finds himself shepherdless. It's hard to get people saved that already love the life that they're living. When they already love what they're doing and they're not broken by it, they are not helpless, they are not powerless, they are not shepherdless. They think they're doing just fine. Praise God, a flood might show them that it's not true. A war on the Korean Peninsula might show them it's not true. Dear God, if Starbucks lattes hit $11 a latte, that might cause the world to collapse. If they can't find those effeminate jeans that they're all wearing these days and have to actually wear something that a man could work in, I don't know what they would do. Second Chronicles fourteen eleven. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Do you hear what he calls himself? Powerless. What are his adversaries? Mighty. Who is the only one he's crying out to help for? The Lord. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we've come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. He has taken His stand. He is not going to back up, but He has no one to help Him but the Lord and no power other than the Lord. When Jesus looked at this crowd, He saw that they were helpless, powerless. They had no shepherd, and so He was compassionate to them. You want to know what brings the compassion of God? When there's not an idol in His place, There's just a broken human being that has nowhere left to go but to him. He has compassion on that broken and contrite heart every time. If you've ever experienced the sternness of God, it's because you were pretty full of your own ideas. You're pretty full of yourself. You're pretty full of what you thought was right. When you experience the compassion of God is when you're broken by having gotten that wrong so many times that you know your true state powerless, hopelessly beyond redemption if he doesn't redeem you. That's why we tend to find good things in the midst of correction rather than the midst of our success. How about 2nd Chronicles 20 and verse 12? O oh, our God, will you not judge them for we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is the prayer of Jehoshaphat. Do you hear how powerless he is? Both of these men, Asa and Jehoshaphat, found the compassion of the Lord. Do you know why? They knew their actual condition. They knew that they were hopeless, that they were lost, that they were on the edge of destruction, but for the mercy of God. Do you know what put them there? When a foreign army that they couldn't defeat was bearing down on them. Do you really think a loving God would let that happen? You betcha. You betcha. Now, if a foreign army's not going to invade you, maybe it's an unstoppable hurricane. Maybe it's an earthquake like this century's never seen. Maybe when circumstances way beyond our control descend upon us, for the first time, people get a chance to say, I'm powerless. Even the earth is shaking beneath my feet. I need you, Lord. And he'll have compassion on anyone like that. You know, you couldn't get the Hurricane Evac route in Noah's day. You know, there was no such thing. There was no contra flow on interstates headed north. You know how ridiculous it is that we can know so far in advance a storm is coming that we can be sitting in a jacuzzi having a Mai Tai watching it on Fox News when it comes? We are so far from helpless. You know that there are actually bars in Florida having hurricane sales right now? The bar decided to stay open so people could drink through the hurricane. It's hard to have compassion on that, isn't it? Romans 5, 6 is maybe the best verse to bring you to here. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Who did Christ die for? Work on your sentence just a little bit. Ungodly is the object of the prepositional phrase for the ungodly. But what is the condition of the person when Christ dies for them? They're powerless. They're powerless. See, you don't receive from Christ until you're in a position that is hopeless, powerless. This is why the first words that Jesus preached to people was repent. Have you ever tried to repent and couldn't? You ever tried to quit cussing and couldn't? Ever quit try tried to quit sexual immorality and you couldn't? Ever tried to quit hateful thoughts and couldn't? You know, I'm asking you a question and you're looking at me like you have no idea what I'm talking about. And I know good and well that you do. and you are powerless to stop it because your sinful nature wants what it wants and does what it does and your whole life you've been a slave to it. When you come to that conclusion, it's the first time in your life that the Lord can step in and say, you have been powerless and I am about to give you a power over this sin. As long as you're trying to become a better person, as long as you're saying that you're going to work your way out of it, as long as you're saying, I've got this, you are damned with no hope. It's when you come to a place that you have no hope. When you know that you're powerless, that for the first time in your life, power will enter your situation. Can I tell you it's not just at salvation. There are things that happen in a Christian's life that you do not have power over until he gives it to you. You start burying your friends and your children and you'll find out what I'm talking about. You want to be happy and you just can't. And it's not till the moment you say, Lord, this is smothering me and I don't have power over it. I need you. He gives you what you need or shows you how to unlock what he's already put there. However the theologian wants to put it. It's the powerless that he has compassion on. And we spend so much time trying to be powerful. Nobody's worse than the charismatic Christians. We can speak in tongues all week and do wicked things in our one day off. You know, powerless is the key to compassion. I'm going to run through something quickly because we're probably out of preachable time. But I've been gone for a while. Took me like three days just to fly back. if you want to rush the sermon, we can do it. My mother taught me to do guilt trips like this. (laughs) It's okay. I gave you birth. But if you want to, it's... Until a man is powerless, he doesn't actually repent. Winston Churchill said about America's entry into World War II, You can always count on America to do the right thing when they've exhausted every other option. See, that is how human beings are. We don't do what is right until we have done what is wrong so long that we are broken by it and powerless. This is what is wrong with telling somebody that they're a pretty good person and if they'll follow Christ, they'll be a better person. No, they were a sinner. They continue to be a sinner, but you've taught them to mask their sin in Christ. The truth is, is if you don't come to a place where you're powerless and dead, you cannot be brought to life by Him. I'm thankful for floods and earthquakes and terrorist attacks and every terrible thing that does beautiful things in people's lives by causing them to know how powerless they actually are. When you are helpless and harassed, He shows His compassion on you. Now, how is He going to do that? He's going to show the world compassion through you. How can that happen if you're not here? Hey, Lord, me, Susie, Susie, Johnny, us four no more. Get us the hell out of here. Let the planet Earth go to hell in a handbasket. Just fly me away with a naked baby on a cloud. Then how does He have compassion on them? When does it happen? It's not happening while we're not preaching to them. at the corners of the world now. When it's as bad as it is in the days of Noah, and we are shining as bright as the sun because of the glory of God, he will have compassion on them. To prove to you that a man doesn't repent until he's powerless, consider Exodus 8:15 in Pharaoh. All the wrath of God is being poured out, but Pharaoh doesn't repent. Do you know why? He's still got options. In Jeremiah 5.3, God's people don't repent. Do you know why? They still got options. In Daniel 5.22-23, Belshazzar's been judged. He's seen the power of God at work, but he doesn't repent. Do you know why? He's still got options. In Matthew 11.20, Chorazin and Bethsaida. They've seen miracles that if they had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. But Bethsaida and Chorazin don't repent. Do you know why? They're not powerless. They still got options. Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Think about that. The rich man's in hell and he's still not repenting. Do you know why? He thinks he's still got options. He wants to order around Lazarus still. In Revelation 2, 21, Revelation 9, 20, and Revelation 16, 11, the literal heavens are pouring out judgment on the earth that has never been seen before. And you know what the Scripture says? They still did not repent. Do you know why? They felt like they had power. So forgive me, I'm excited when the power goes out. What are they going to do? without power for days upon days after the hurricane goes by. What are they going to do? Could be a time for God's great compassion. Could be a time for judgment. It ought to be a very sobering moment. I think we're better for those moments in life. Don't you? Could I put up a second slide? (coughs) As we come to an end, I wanted to redirect you to Wednesday's message which was about being at your wit's end. See, in Psalm 107, four times, said in their distress they cried out to the Lord, and He rescued them. It's always in distress that someone cries out to the Lord. Nobody cries out to the Lord when there is no distress. You don't need a great Savior if you don't need to be saved from a great problem. Right? The greater the tragedy, the greater the problem, the greater your need for a Savior. And so... In Psalm 107, we saw that when they lost their way and they hungered and they thirst because of it, God brought them by a straight way into a city to settle. Do you know why? Because Ezekiel 34 says he himself would search for the lost. That's his heart. How could a loving God do that? Because if something doesn't happen that shows they've lost their way, they won't cry out to him and he can't save them. Does that make sense? The second one. People who knew his counsel, despised it, and ended up in darkness and chains. But in the midst of that, they cried out to him. And he brought them out of darkness, and he broke their chains. Because Ezekiel 34 says he likes to bring back the strays. See, this is the heart of God... Each of these people are experiencing a storm of some kind in their life and without the storm they don't know they need to be saved. But because of the storm they cry out and He saves them. How could a loving God do that? I think you're beginning to see because He loves them. In the third instance, their rebellion and their iniquity caused them to come near to the place of death. So He sent His Word to heal them. Do You know why? Because He loves to bind up those who have been injured. He loves to do it. He's not just the God who allows the calamity. He's the God that will bring the healing from the calamity right out of it. He can bring you into the slavery of Egypt and redeem you from it and make you better for it. How do people sit back in judgment of God the way that they do? Well, because they still feel like they're in a position of power. The fourth one was men went out on the water, out on the mighty waters. There, they got in over their head. Their courage failed. The Scripture literally says they were at their wits' end. But when they cried out to the Lord, just like Jonah did, He stilled the storm and brought them to a safe haven because our God loves to strengthen the weak. Understand what we're actually discussing here today. There are so many things that the world can turn to in difficulty. You can have more flood insurance. You're going to hear that a lot. I love that these floods are usually in zones that you're not supposed to have a flood for every 500 years or something ridiculous like that. You're going to hear Mr. Worldly Wise Man tell you all kinds of things that you can do to prevent loss. But the truth is, you know there's nothing you can do to prevent loss. If an earthquake that is an 8.1 hit Houston, do you know what that would be like? There'd be no insurance, no place to hide. Just ask them in Chiapas, Mexico. If a tsunami, like the one that hit the Muslim world, happened in the Gulf of Mexico, there'd be no place to hide. The one refuge that we can hide in is to give the Lord our life now to recognize how absolutely powerless you are right now. In fact, it's the most empowering thing that could ever happen to you. See, this world is full of powerful weaklings, men who believe they have everything under control. They walk around with their chests stuck out, their bank accounts have insulated them from trial, their uh, physique maybe makes them feel macho, Maybe it's their gun that they carry or the beautiful woman at their arm. But we both know in an instant they can be put into a position that shows how absolutely powerless they are. And they're the only one that doesn't know it. Christian, you're powerless in any area that you've not submitted to the Lord. Totally. Already defeated by the enemy in any area that doesn't belong to the Lord. Do you praise God well on Sunday but your entertainment life is something that would make him vomit? Powerless. You've shown the enemy the way into your mind. If you ask God to forgive you and you will not forgive another, powerless. You've shown the enemy the way to drown you in defeat. We're not supposed to be powerless any longer. You were supposed to come to a position that was powerless and receive power over sin. Even in this service, I've already had to do very difficult things, things I would rather not do. Maybe things that I would say I can't do. But the Lord will help you do what must be done. And you'll feel His approval. Did you all feel His approval during the worship service? Yes. Exodus fifteen thirteen is the second to last scripture I want to share with you. Say there when you were there. Can you imagine the Noahic flood, how many bodies were floating? Can you imagine in the exodus from Egypt, how many soldiers that somebody would say they were good men died when the Red Sea closed over them? After all, they were just grieving the loss of their firstborn sons. How could a loving God do that? And at the same moment that he's judging the gods of Egypt and those who followed those gods, look at verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Whose strength guides you to the holy dwelling? His. Have you learned to rely upon your own strength and you stop being powerless? It's a danger to everyone in the room. When you think you have things figured out, you know what it tends to do? Produce legalistic, mean-spirited Christians. When you recognize how powerless you actually are except for the grace of God and how rarely you have actually taken advantage of the grace of God, it produces a broken and a contrite people that see the Lord's hand at work in everything. And you're so excited for the one that got saved, it never occurred to you to charge God with error for the five that drowned. Verse 37 of chapter 9 is our last verse. Matthew, you can come up here. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. How big is the harvest, friends? Plentiful. But the workers are few. Christians can get together and pray for a harvest, but it's an unscriptural thing. We've never had to pray for a harvest. We're in such a target-rich environment that what we actually have to pray for are for workers. It's, our next, it's the next verse. Go to 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers. <coughs> How many of you are workers? How many of you are looking for the lost? Do you still need to be sent out? Are you chained to your seat? Does palsy come over you in the moment of action? He doesn't just say raise up workers. He doesn't say identify them, empower them, teach them. He says send out workers into his harvest field. The goal of the gospel is that every tribe, every tongue, every nation would know about the compassion of God in their circumstance where they find themselves powerless. The only way to get that done is to send a people that have been emptied of all of their own power but filled on high with His to the corners of the world. It's even best when it's dangerous... It's even better when it's obnoxious that you're there. What are you doing in Iraq? Well, I'm not a soldier. I'm not with the UN. What are you doing here? Well, the God of the universe told me to love my brother and you're my brother. Well, I'm a Muslim. I know that's even better, right? <laughs> I am here to tell you that while I was powerless And a monstrous sinner before God, He had mercy on me. And He may have mercy on you if you can come to the same place. You know what they have to deal with? Either this person is a total lunatic or they're a liar. And since they're risking their life to just be here to tell me, they might be telling the truth. See, if we only do missions when it's safe, if we only go hand out sandwiches or jambalaya in a flood, we're risking nothing. And the message is actually powerless. But if when you go, you love them enough to boldly address their situation and what God is doing in their life, then it is powerful. And some will be saved because He'll have compassion on them. Jesus Christ told us to pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send out workers. That's what I want to do this morning. I want to close in Matthew 9 right where we began. In Matthew 9, the work of God was being attributed to the devil. When Jesus did an outstanding miracle, they said it was of the power of Beelzebub. In our day, that is happening, but the reverse is happening as well. When people are doing the work of the devil, others are calling it God. We need God to raise up from us workers who will go boldly speak into the darkness in every neighborhood, not just the one that happens to wear the same kind of shoes you wear. Everywhere you go. And the more different and alien you are to the environment, the more it lends validity to the pureness of your motive for being there. Saints, God has set the stage for us. This is our wake-up call. Will you stand to your feet?